we've been visiting some of Scotland's oldest places, the places where humans first settled down 4,000, 5,000 years ago. And that, that age is what makes them so exciting and interesting. But today we're going to do something slightly different and we're going to visit a site that's younger than me. My name is Matthew McGee and I was always fascinated by standing stones I came across, wondering who put them there, how come they're still there and what on earth were they for? Monumentality is, is very much a farmer thing. Someone put these here 5,000 years ago and they're still here and that's magical. So I persuaded some experts to meet me at Scotland's most beautiful, interesting and remote Neolithic sites and got on my bike to go and talk to them. By saying, I can make the sun come back and the days get longer again. Let's just build this monument and I'll show you. So and they showed me how much we can learn about the sophisticated, connected, artistic lives of the very first people to give up hunting and gathering and settle down as farmers. Can you describe what the culture was that this was a part of? No. <laughs> this is my journey and these are the stories I heard. Welcome to Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. In this final programme of the first series of Stone Me, we'll investigate a modern stone circle and talk to its creator to see if we can answer some of the big questions about this kind of monument. We'll battle the elements to find out how today's people have responded to this unusual city centre site, and we'll dig more deeply into something we've only really touched on so far, the controversial world of archaeoastronomy. This is Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. I am just approaching Site Hill, just to the north of Glasgow city centre, where in the 1970s, the first astronomically aligned stone circle and mark that phrase, we'll be hearing it a lot, was built in Britain in three and a half thousand years. It's a modern stone circle. And what's really exciting is that we're going to meet the guy who made it happen. So many of the questions we're asking ourselves are about who built these monuments? Why did they build them? How did they build them? Who used them? How did they use them? What did they do? What did they think of them? And here we are, approaching a stone circle to talk to the person who actually did that. Now, of course, Duncan Lunan's motives are going to be different to the motives of somebody 5,000 years ago, but some of it might be the same. And we might learn something about the fundamental drive to make marks on the landscape like this. And to help us, we're also going to have joining us Kenny Brophy from the Archaeology Department at the University of Glasgow, who's been doing fascinating work on applying the same archaeological techniques to this site as he does to the ancient sites to interrogate who's using it and how and why. So I'm just pulling into what is still a pretty big building site where they're doing enormous redevelopment of this whole area, which is actually what caused 
the circle to move. It was built in the 1970s and is, is being moved. It's, the work is just finishing off now. It's moved 200 metres down the road. So there's lots of very nice, shiny looking new build homes. And we're up on a rise above Glasgow to the north. And we can see all the way down and right through to the hills south of Glasgow. And it's a lovely, sunny, windy day. So the Sight Hill Circle, it sits on quite a prominent mount. You can probably hear the motorway. We're just, just north of the M8 as it passes around the north of Glasgow city centre. And it's maybe, I don't know, 20 metres in diameter with, with about a dozen stones at curiously irregular intervals. So stones are clumped together and then there are gaps, are clumped together and there are gaps. Uh, and there's a big standing stone in the centre of it, which is quite unusual um, and, and not like very many of the ancient stone circles. And it really is amazing to see you know, there are tower blocks to my left. There's this new uh, housing estate. The motorway's just there. Uh, and then just to see this ancient-looking site perched on top of a, a mound, it's quite extraordinary. I met up with Duncan Lunan, who writes about astronomy and science fiction, and Kenny Brophy, senior lecturer in archaeology at Glasgow University. As you'll hear, it was an extremely windy day on a very exposed site, so sorry about the wind noise. We did huddle in the lee of the circle's central stone for cover, but it only did so much good. Duncan designed the original site and this replacement one. It was moved to make way for new housing and was just about to open to the public again when we recorded there in February 2023. He told me why he chose this place for this unique experiment. It's an unusual thing to do, it's an unusual place for it to be. How did this modern stone circle come into being? It arose from the Jobs Creation Scheme uh, when the Glasgow Parks Department was allocated £4 million in 1978. They were required to formulate special projects, one was astronomy, and they held a schools competition and the winning entry was to build a copy of an ancient site in modern materials. I was offered the job, and I had to point out that a copy of an ancient site in a new, new location would not work for a whole range of reasons. So um, what I would have to do is to find a suitable place and design something according to the ancient principles. Now, we're standing here on what is left of the ancient broom hill, uh, the three big hills north of the city were the Summer Hill, the Site Hill over there, where the cemetery is now, and the Broom Hill. Historically, we are in the right place. There are significant alignments in the landscape, and there, and there were solstice fairs on the Summer Hill over there. And um, the thing is, there are ancient connections to the site. The, the cathedral is back over there, over, over my shoulder. Um, and the line of an old drover's road called Dobie's Lone runs from the cathedral, which was built over an ancient site, to the base of the Summer Hill. And from the Summer Hill, the midsummer sun rises over the Site Hill. The names are telling. 
In fact, they held summer solstice fairs on the summer hill until well into the 17th century. So, um, yeah, we're in the right place. Um, what they built round us is a momentary inconvenience. Uh, uh, if it's going to be here for 5,000 years, those buildings will be gone in probably 30. Uh, maybe longer, but uh, yeah, but, uh, yeah, buildings will just flicker in and out on the horizon during its lifetime. Now, you'll have heard Duncan say there, he couldn't just copy an ancient monument. He had to come up with a design according to the ancient principles. And here we get to the heart of the whole project, and probably the most controversial thing about this monument. Duncan had studied astronomy at Glasgow under Archie Roy, whose ideas on ancient astronomy included the claim that many Neolithic monuments were built as astronomical observatories. Remember I said to keep in mind the phrase, astronomically aligned? Well, Roy and others followed the thinking of Alexander Tom, his son Archie, and a small group of other renegade thinkers who believed that stone circles and other monuments were built in precise places and patterns in order to align with celestial events. The sun or moon rising or setting at midsummer or midwinter, or at an equinox, the movement of particularly bright stars, or the lunar standstills that happened every 18.6 years, as we saw at the Stones of Callanish. This isn't an outlandish idea. The midwinter rising sun lights up the chamber at the Neolithic tomb Newgrange in Ireland. Midsummer sunrise and midwinter sunset are aligned with some of the stones at Stonehenge in England. Nobody thinks these are accidents. But Tom and his followers took it further, finding complex alignments for lots of elements of lots of sites and making claims that philosopher priests were doing what we would now call science. Duncan described stone circles to me as observatories. That's a pretty big claim. So, naturally enough, that's the approach he took when he designed Sight Hill. And why astronom- astronomically aligned? Is that what old stone circles were? I believe so. And I, was, um, I studied astronomy at Glasgow Uni- University under the late Professor Archie Roy, who taught on ancient astronomy, among other topics. Um, and he, he, he got me interested in the subject and he convinced me of its reality. And then when I was building the circle, I consulted frequently with Professor Alexander Tom and his son, Dr. Archie Tom, and Dr. Ewan Mackay at the Ontario Museum, all, all of them experts in the field and the other guys to whom the circle is dedicated. They were all completely convinced of the, the astronomical significance of the exercise. Whether they, were, whether they were built for that purpose, we may never know and probably won't ever know. And so, what is the organising principle of this site? Um, what I have done in order to get something that would work in the present day is to take the layout of observing stations around a broken stone in Brittany called La Grande Menier Brisée, uh, the great broken stone, um, that whole complex is about 20 miles across, and I've scaled it down to 20 feet, essentially. Uh, it marks midsummer sunrise and sunset, midwinter sunrise and sunset, the flanking lunar alignments, major and minor, for each of those four solar alignments. And there's also a star alignment to the rising of Rigel, which will tell future archaeoastronomers when it was built. Duncan is pretty happy with his original calculations for the 1979 site. He's had the chance to check them over the 40 years since. And, but when we're talking about accuracy, 
uh, over those, those 40 years, as we're observing events happen over the stones, they all did happen over the stones. They happened within the diameter of the stones, all but one. And that was on a very foggy night, so you can't, can't really trust that observation. The um, thing is, it does function as an observatory, uh, as, as I was told to make it, make it do. So, if you and all the features in it can be found at one ancient site or another. So, if you're going to say the ancient sites aren't observatories, you have to say, well, where does the difference lie? Kenny Brophy is an academic archaeologist who's written about and excavated a wide variety of Neolithic sites, including stone circles, and who's done his own digging into some of Tom's theories about astrological alignments at Scottish sites. I wanted to hear his view. And, and what about the issue of astronomical alignment? Duncan is very certain that that was... Yeah. I mean, you, you've called stone circles observatories. That was why they were built like they were built. That was their yeah. purpose. What do you think? I think that they, that was one of the roles they served. Um, I've, I mean, I've, having worked on um, the multiple stone rows in Northern Scotland, um, I'm fairly sure that they don't serve the astronomical purpose Alexander Tom argued that they did, which was a, to, to monitor lunar, lunar standstills and, um, and predict eclipses. Um, so I think that the standing stones are quite crude. Um, um, devices to use to monitor quite precise or accurate measurements. Um, but on the other hand, Duncan Elon did say about having the stones capturing a range where an experience happens somewhere over the stone, which is more in keeping with my feeling that there was certainly an attempt to try and um, replicate or to try and document certain astronomical phenomena, um, maybe not at a kind of a millimetre perfect level of accuracy, but to create an effect that people can recognise. So I don't think there's any reason why that wasn't something that was built into some stone circles, maybe not all. And we found that also with the earthwork sites, some henges. So we have, uh, we have solstice alignments, earthworks and henges. The light box effect at Mayeshow and Newgrange. Um, is is, OK, is the time for a technology talk break. Kenny's talking about earthworks, which we heard a bit about in the Comartin Glen programme. But just a quick reminder of what they were. They were monuments formed out of the ground itself. Things like henges, big circular ditches and embankments, or curses monuments, big long ditch and embankment structures that could stretch for miles. We don't talk about them as much because they were often ploughed away and they don't look as cool as big stones sticking out of the ground. But they were massive labour drains and built on a staggering scale, so they were clearly very important to Neolithic people. Back to Kenny. So we have, so we have, uh, we have solstice alignments, earthworks and henges, the light box effect at Mayeshow and Newgrange um, is, a, is, is demonstrably an astronomical alignment that works and, is, and had, a, had a role probably of evoking an experience rather than necessarily measuring the turn of the, the, the time of year. So I think that these alignments did exist and I think that's something that prehistorians have come to accept in the last few decades. I think that when Tom was working, Ewan Mackay was doing work in this area, it was, it was a lot of this stuff was poo-pooed by prehistorians. But now there's an acceptance that, that people in prehistory did have the ability to document and measure astronomical events. And it may, of course, have been related to things like the, the annual harvest cycles and crop husbandry and, and all that kind of stuff but these were monuments that were much more than that i think that they were they would have served a range of different roles within society um, i don't even think they were primarily constructed as observatories but that role may have been built into them as part of the purpose so i think that there's a there's a lot there's there are sites that would have been used for a lot of different things and i think that the astronomical observatory element was a part of that but not the, not the be all and end all 
talked to a lot of people about ancient mon monuments in, in the process of, of this and everybody that I've talked to when, when you ask the question, what were they for? Well, we're not quite sure. It could be this, it could be that. You know, no, nobody gives a de definitive answer. Apart from you, Duncan, you're the only person who says, I know what they were for, this is what they were for. Oh, why do you think that is? Um, well, I, I don't think I'm the... I'm not, even, I'm not exactly saying this is what they were for. What I'm saying is, if it, if it wasn't what they had in mind at the outset, nevertheless, they discovered they could be used that way, and because of human nature, curiosity being what it is, they started they started to use them as observatories and then got fascinated by what they were discovering and then they went way, way beyond the practical needs of agriculture if they, if they were studying the balloon um, you know as they say the three most important the two most important words in the history of science are that's odd um, and th these guys were doing it um, if, you, if you don't want to say they were scientists don't don't do it. And in his later years, you and Mackay reckoned he'd, he'd use the word scientist too often. But yeah, they were doing science in their, in their own way, but uh, perhaps, but they were doing it. And uh, so that bit at least of their use, I am quite convinced by and I'm confident of it. And the, the experiences that I've had here in the last 40 years have only strengthened that belief. We're standing at the second site of the Site Hill Stone Circle. In 2012, plans were revealed for lots of new building in the area and the site was to be demolished. But there was a public outcry and a groundswell of local support. It was eventually agreed that the circle could be rebuilt a couple of hundred metres to the east and the new site opened in 2023. That campaign and the public response allowed Duncan to understand, maybe for the first time, how much the site meant to local people. One of the really touching things about the campaign to save it when that started in 2012 was that I had been, I had been challenged by the, the planning department. Does anybody go there? How many people use it? To which I, I had no answer. But it turned out literally thousands had come to it for ritual purposes of their own or meditation scattering their loved ones' ashes, and it looks as if somebody's already started doing it again. Um, there was a family called Forbes who kept a monument, uh, a marker to the commemorating their mother at the Central Stone. And this is all good. It's all acceptance by the community. It's making it part of their lives. And, I mean, we're, we're looking at a, a wreath that someone's, it looks like a Christmas decoration with some red baubles sitting in the middle of the, the grass, which, as you say, demonstrates that Perhaps people are, maybe even before it's open, coming in and using it. Kenny, this is something you've been looking at, isn't it? You've, you've been studying how the local community has actually interacted with the site. Yes, yeah, so a lot of my um, the work I've, I've done with the circle is to try and just monitor in a very informal way how people were using the, the monument. And as Duncan's already said, there was a wide range of different uses that were going on that were often... Um, quite hidden or didn't really have much of a footprint so I visited the site just lots and lots of times regularly from about 2014 until it was dismantled just documenting traces of any kinds of activity that were happening on the site so there was instances of deposition of holes being dug of um, fires being set and other things like candle wax on stones which kind of suggested there was 
rites or rituals happening, you know, pagan or druidic, kind of neo-pagan things happening, which is what you would expect. And I think that was very, it was very, the monument was very important to that community. Um, and there's certainly photographs online of people in the circle with gowns on and dressed up for that kind of activity. But also there was evidence for more illicit behaviour, drinking, um, endless bags of crisps found at the site, lots of tenants lager, um, vodka bottles, broken glass, suggesting even though the stone circle was in quite a, a visible place, it was still being used for kind of illicit behaviour, probably in the dark or in the evenings. Uh, but the site was also used for astronomical readings, as Duncan said, and I didn't find any archaeological evidence for that activity, but I'm sure if we'd been able to do some more invasive work, we might have found that. And also there was a memorial element as well, the Forbes family with the central stone that we're standing beside just now, that became a shrine to two um, generations of women in that family. And so over the years visiting, I've documented flowers, photographs, um, the offerings of um, little kind of statues and dolls, even one time there was a mobile phone casing had been tied around the stone with some ribbon. So there's a lot of kind of depositional acts that were happening as well from that family. So there was a real sense that even though it often seemed like a quiet place, apart from the motorway, when you visited, and in fact, it was a circle that was really important to a lot of people. And I think that's, for me, that's the most special thing about what, Duncan's, what Duncan did. He created a, um, a new place in Glasgow that was a focus for a lot of um, emotional activity and investment from people. And it's actually, you know, there's, there's, there's not a lot of body, um, buildings and structures that we, we can create now that will have that kind of resonance with people. So for many reasons, it's a, it's a very important um, place and that's why I'm so happy it's, it's been revitalised and it's going to be reopened to the public again soon. And that memorial activity was specifically about women in the family and not men. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, it, it could just be that that was who died. So I, I don't want to necessarily think there was any kind of association of, of females with the monument, although that might have been the case. Um, but certainly, you know, there's... The, the, to try and... Um, I mean, one of the challenges in archaeology is always to take the material residues and traces that we find and then try and interpret them, and sometimes we can over-interpret things. And so, you know, there, there, there could be a temptation to, to try and read more to it, into it than necessarily was there. Certainly, having spoken to, to Jack Forbes... It was clear it was an important place to the family and had a lot of emotional resonance. And one of the things that was nice was when the council eventually decided to re-situate the circle rather than just remove it, they made a gesture to the family of um, moving the topsoil from that site to here, which I assume has been done. Uh, and that was really to try and say, well, actually, we understand that that soil is invested with theoretically the elements of the, of the, the ashes of the family members. And so we want to make sure that remnant of the circle retains. Uh, so there's... So there's also something quite special about the, the soil we're standing on as well and an element of the fact that it's not just the stones that have moved but also the emotional resonance and the, and the other materials in the soils as well. So um, I think that that's something that's quite special. Can you tell us a bit about how you did your work? You're, you're using traditional archaeological techniques but instead of the ground being 5,000 years old, it's from the 1970s. Yeah, yeah I mean... I, I mean, essentially, archaeology is a set of techniques and it's a toolkit for understanding human material relations. And so it doesn't really matter to me if a stone circle is built in 2000 BC or in 1979 um, or 2018 or 19. So um, I monitored and documented and recorded and photographed found objects and things that were on the site. Um, and so it was a kind of a, a more of an informal survey more than anything else. But using... You, by having that kind of archaeological eye, I guess I was able to start to pick up on, you know, like wear patterns where there was 
bits of grass have been worn by people moving and, act, and actions carrying out. And the, th the, the great advantage of that kind of contemporary archaeology is that you can then, I could then go and speak to Duncan and ask him about the monument. I could speak to users and I could, and I could contextualise the stuff that I'd found. So um, not only is archaeology useful, we're trying to look at modern stone circles, for want of a better phrase. It's actually better than looking at ancient stone circles because we can actually say something useful and meaningful and we can corroborate that by talking to people so for me it's a it's actually a really useful way to think about the monument uh, and it combines the best of archaeology but also with kind of oral history and maybe other methodologies as well so um, I mean I've, I mean my, a lot of the, the, the archaeology I do now is focused on 20th century Glasgow and for me it's a it's a valuable technique which just sometimes starts to find things in the gaps between memories and photographs and documentation and blueprints and these material traces that are often ephemeral might only be there for a day or two so if you can document those as well then it adds to the story. And I mean you've, you've dug and researched ancient sites as well the big questions about those are who's using them how are they using them you know, what was it for, and then how does it contrast with how it was actually used by people? As you say, you've been able to talk to actual live human people who've used this site. How does that inform your thinking about the ancient sites? I think that, um, I think it reinforces the fact that stone circles are, are powerful places. And I'm, I, don't, I don't like to kind of think, say that some things are primal that people do, but erecting standing stones is something that people have done for 5,000 years in Scotland um, and continue to do so and I think there's always a power to it um, that, that creates special places that brings people together that generates communities that, um, that that matters to people so I think that I certainly wouldn't say that the, the Sighthill Stone Circle here is used as the same way as say one of the stone circles at Macri Moor or in Templewood and Comartin or the Stones of Stenness but what it does demonstrate to me is that the circles through their use life, which often can be really extensive, had a range of different purposes and they meant different things to different people. So there may well have been, you know, an astronomer priest class, as Ewan Mackay might have said, someone who actually understood how the circle operated or worked and was able to understand some of the, the astronomical significance of the, of the site. But then there was also other people who maybe went to the stone for private um, kind of memorialisation of the, the dead. Perhaps it was used for dancing, for trade and exchange um, rituals or um, just transactions um, they may have been used for children to play in the kids may have climbed on the stones we just don't know so I think we have to understand we have to accept the stone circles there's no one single solution to what they were used for or why they were constructed but they were probably sites that were used for lots of different things by different groups of people and that meaning changed over centuries because these are sites that were, were in effect or almost permanent in some in some respects so I think that site how it just reinforces to me that stone circles are, are magical places that mean a lot of things to different people and there's no doubt that would have been the case in prehistory as well and you know amongst those big questions are who built them who made them who designed them why did they do it and we are in the unique position of having somebody here who did that um how i'm going to ask you something we can't ask whoever built them five thousand years ago how does it feel to stand here looking at a stone circle of your design to your purpose that will probably still be here 5,000 years from now? Oh, it uh, undoubtedly feels great. Uh, uh, there's a, a lot of satisfaction in, in having done it. 
And uh, the, the late John Braithwaite, who was my second in command, very much felt that way when, when we started to erect it at the original site. Um, we got the stones in that arc up, leaving the smaller ones for the helicopter. And at that point, John said, Christ, it's beautiful. He says, I never thought it would look this good. Um, and um, yeah, there is, a, there is a great sense of satisfaction in having done it. Like anything, the stone circle is of its time. And that time is now, rather than 5,000 years ago. It doesn't actually match the form of ancient circles particularly precisely. But perhaps that doesn't matter. This design of this stone circle, is this like ancient stone circles? <laughs> I don't, well, no, I don't think... Not, not really in the sense that there's, there's not many sites I can think of that have got a central stone. Um, I know that's a device to help people to use the circle. Um, and and the, generally the stones, have got, they're more regular spacing, whereas they're a bit more clumped together in places, which is partly, again, to do with the function of the site. So I wouldn't necessarily say that it, necess- it evokes directly any stone circle that I've been in before, but it's still a stone circle, which is the most important thing. Um, and it, it serves its own purpose, and it works really well at what it does. So I don't think it really matters whether it's, you know, it's an exact blueprint of a site in existence or an amalgam of different sites, because it's still a stone yeah, circle. It is. It's an amalgam of different yeah. sites. That's exactly what it is. Um, for every for every feature, yeah, you know, I can take I can I can name an ancient site that there's something like that on, uh, like the star alignment, for instance. There's a, there's only one prominent star alignment at Callanish, which is to Altair, and there's only one in this, which is to Rigel, because Rigel happened to be the most suitable one for the purpose here. Um, but it's like, yeah, it goes on like that. Um, yeah, it's like the Neolithic's greatest hits. Yes. All brought together in one stone circle. An amazing insight into how this particular project came into being, but also into ways of thinking about the ancient sites, about, about the kind of people that built them. Were they astronomer priests? Was it a project of social cohesion? Were they even used in the ways that the people who designed them planned for them to be? Or did people make up their own uses? I mean, that's certainly what's happened at Site Hill, where, as Kenny's work identifies, people really used the site for their own purposes, to memorialise, to drink and smoke, to have fires, to, to just gather and be together and to eat snacks, it sounds like. What were Neolithic stone monuments for? That's really the underlying question of all of my journeys by bike, boat and train to the furthest reaches of Scotland to look at the most dramatic, beautiful remains of our most ancient settled civilization. I had the unique opportunity to talk to someone who actually created one of these sites, albeit three and a half thousand years later. Someone who embodied an idea in permanent form. And surely that's what those ancient people were doing too. You can query, and I do, whether the idea he was embodying, his interpretation of those ancient monuments, is right. But what you can't question is the action, the impulse. Archaeologist Richard Bradley talks about the desire to make marks on the landscape, to shape and define the places where people newly settled. Talking to Duncan as the bright yellow vehicles and fences and hard hats of the construction of a new settlement bustled around us, it seemed less important that I agreed with his interpretation 
and more important, that I admired his action, and saw in it echoes of those ancient builders whose extraordinary efforts live with us still in physical, imposing stone form, even as their motivations remain an enigma. This is the last in this series of Stone Me, and you may be glad to know that I'm already planning a second one, so look out for that in the months ahead. And if you want to support that programme making, you can buy a virtual coffee to do that at ko-fi.com slash stonemepodcast. Thank you so much for all your support, your lovely comments, your liking and sharing, and most of all, your time and attention. When I had this idea, and even when I was out and about making the programmes, I wasn't sure anybody would be particularly interested. So it's been wonderful that so many of you have been listening. Thank you. And see you next time on Stone Me, investigating Scotland's oldest places. Thank you.